Good evening, everybody. I hope everyone can hear me. And uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, on right on time for the second um, edition of our co-hosted Twitter space between uh, Mwango Capital and Africa Uncensored. Mwango Uncensored is a hashtag. For over the past uh, two weeks, or at least with the first session, we've been trying to discuss things of mutual interest both to, to us uh, as well as our audiences and Kenyans in general. Of course, the, the, the joint Twitter space was inspired by the series that African Censor is currently doing on the history of money in Kenya called Thao. If you're a Kenyan who enjoys Sheng, check it out. But uh, we are trying to, ex to discuss more existential issues than just money. Thus, the, the titles of our past Twitter space on kleptocracy. And this one, which turns the questions and the problems that we discussed last week on their head, and today we're asking about the Kenya we want. If you see the pinned tweet at the top of this Twitter space, we're asking a really perhaps simple and uh, question that, that many people have considered. Kenya is an immensely beautiful country. Uh, I feel like we can all agree on that. One with um, great potential and, and great things that have already been achieved so far. And yet, if you look onto your trending topics this evening, at least on mine, number one and number three represent some of the worst of Kenya's um, civic space and, and political space and discussions, and by extension, some of our worst. But today we're really talking about the Kenya that we want, what, what that means even. And here with us to discuss this topic are people who have done Kenya proud as individuals, in their respective careers and just as people, really, really admirable people. We have Anjala Nyabola, Nanjira Sambuli. This, as uh, Rosalina Kombe had, uh, had intimated, this is not some sort of trick to try and see whether Nanjala and Nanjira are the same person. But they are both here on our space this evening. We're very honored to have them. Also, hopefully joining us later on uh, in this space is a veteran politician, Farah Malim. Um, former member of parliament for Lagdera, as well as former deputy speaker. And, and of course, all of you. And from um, Mwango Capital, my co-host this evening, Mr. Sud Haider, a former classmate, I should also say. So I'll let everybody say hello and tell everybody who's on the space a little bit about themselves. Nanjira, let's start with you. For a moment there, John, I wasn't sure if you said Nanjala or myself. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, everyone. Many hats, but mostly I look at the intersection of tech and society. And in season, how tech is going to influence our civic processes, but also the election process itself. Looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thanks a lot, Nanjira. And I did say Nanjira. <laughs> and I'll be sure to be uh, as clear and enunciate as, as clearly as possible no, so as not to make any mistakes. Nanjala, you're up next. It's okay. Actually, it's not bad to be confused with someone who is as cool as Nigeria. So I'll take it. I also wear many hats. And I guess I'm in this hall in my capacity as a concerned Kenyan and a researcher who's done a lot of work, the shape of politics, not just in Kenya, but around the world. So I'm excited to be on this call and I'm excited to be part of this conversation. Thanks a lot, Nanjala. Finally, Sood. So would you mind um, unmuting and, and telling everybody uh, uh, who you are and uh, what you do? Fantastic. I think the folks from uh, the Mwango uh, spaces usually would know who I am. My name is Sud Hayden, one of the cogs in the wheel at uh, Mwango Capital. We uh, do a lot of commentary, mostly on markets, a little bit on technology and startups. 
And this year we've made it our agenda, given that it is a political season to see how best now we can merge our coverage, especially with partners. And that's kind of what drove the partnership with Africa and Sunset. And the main goal is to have conversations that are not happening on mainstream media. I have been fortunate enough to travel the world, mostly on media related assignments and have been fortunate enough to work for a major broadcaster, major international broadcaster. So some of the things that we picked up along the lines, my background is in technology, but technology and media in this day and age, it's very difficult to do, differentiate at what point is it media and at what point is it technology. And I think this one of the issues we have as a country where media is still stuck in a day and age that it's past its shelf life and the media has been captured by people close to the state or state entities, however you want to uh, call it. But media in Kenya, as we speak, isn't really serving the nation as it used to. Look, in the 90s, in the late 90s, up to around 2002, 2003, I think the highlight for me as a Kenyan, having a free press was in 2002 and it was a fantastic moment. There's a lot of euphoria and there's a lot of hope. And I think Johnny just graduated then from high school and there's a, a whole new Kenya beyond us. And it feels that things have changed. And the initiatives that we have is like, okay, can we reclaim back uh, our spaces? And I hope conversations like these with guests, with very valuable and knowledgeable guests like we have today will take us forward. Back to you, John. Thanks a lot, Sud. And, and you are right that the feeling that I had and we all had as we left high school was one of immense hope based on the the changes that were taking place at the time. This was 2002 and Waikibaki was on the cusp of um, electoral victory and seating a behemoth of a political party that had, you know, had, had been ruling this country since independence. But I'll ask this one differently to both Nanjira and Nanjala. I'll start with you, Nanjala. I don't know if those are coming of age. I don't know which age is a coming of age for anybody. I guess it's different for, for everyone. But when you look back and, and, and thought of your first few years of political consciousness, what was your hope for this country? What used to swell your chest with pride when you used to think about Kenya and the future that lay ahead of you? That's an interesting question. I don't like to use the millennial Gen X generational markers because I think every society has generational markers. And I think that our generational markers are slightly different. So what would be considered Gen X and millennials in the US will probably comprise a single generation in Kenya just because of the way our society has taken shape. And the reason I say that is I think most of us do look back on 2002 as a point of transformation. And I certainly do, because I'm old enough to remember life under Moy and old enough to have remembered life, uh, the worst um, moments of living under Moy. Well, you could argue that 82 was the worst moment, but the late 80s, early 90s were no walk in the park either. And I'm old enough to be disgusted by the sanitization of his legacy. And I'm old enough to be frustrated that this at least, at least mentality has made a comeback. And 2002, I think, represented a moment of tremendous transformation and hope and optimism for me personally, because it kind of was an indicator that we had agency over our political um, story, that we were not just uh, waiting 
or, or our fate was actually in our hands, that we were not just the consequences of other people's political behavior and other people's political decision-making. And, and the real promise of 2002 was the possibility of participation, that you didn't have to be super connected and you didn't have to be more acolyte, acolyte to have a voice in the political trajectory of the country. It's the first and so far the only time in my life as a Kenyan where I actually thought, oh, this politics thing, this is something that I could actually do. Because it's something, there was a, a possibility there, right? That you could have an impact and you could do something. And it's a possibility that has diminished considerably. That was like the apogee. I think everything else has kind of been uh, a descent into chaos because from my perspective, what is really shifting in Kenya, it's not material in the sense, I mean, obviously we have the economic situation and the political situation, what have you, but the real tragedy of what's happening in Kenya is all the intangible things that are disappearing that make possibility an option. It's the sense of camaraderie. It's the sense of community. It's the sense of trust. It's the sense of possibility that's being eroded. And so for me, that is what why 2002 is such a touchstone. It's not so much that there was an election and people won the election and Mwai Kibaki then became the greatest president in the history of presidents. He certainly was not. It really was the fact that there was a political transition and that meant that the possibility that had been denied us, arguably since 1897, was finally taking shape. Thanks for that, Nanjala. Uh, Nanjiro, maybe if you could give us your take looking at the last 20 years and yourself as a Kenyan who's kind of grown through this space, what has changed? Are we moving forward? Are we moving backwards? How has it panned out? I mean, we're moving. Whether we have a direction is the question before us, I suppose. Yeah, it's quite surreal to think that's 20 years. And I think to Nanjala's point about generational coming of age, I think it's been suggested that with the Kenyan case, you should always speak of, of the president under whom you grew up and moved from being a non-taxpayer to a taxpayer. So for many of us, it seems the Moy transition was that watershed moment. Since that 2002 moment is spoken about a lot, I will focus a bit on 2013 because it was the first election under the new constitution, having gone through the painful period of uh, 2007 onwards. And I feel like that tried to bring back that moment of hope, right? We've tried to change the dispensation under which we govern this country. We were going in for, despite the confusion at the ballot box, many more elective people hoping that democracy and representation would come closer to us. And here we are at the almost 10-year mark. And unfortunately, it was good on paper, not so good in practice. And I think we have to start contending with that and speaking about that a lot more. I think I find it quite surreal, even in present day. It seems like either through the media or how issues are framed, we're still so fixated on what's happening at that sort of executive presidential level. It's a bit unfortunate that they were even, even thinking about August or whenever it is we will vote. We're not yet hearing about who's more concerned about who their MCA will be, how accessible their MCA has been, or any other hyper-local representation at the devolution level. So that, for me, is another moment, and it's just 10 years of a new constitution trying to govern. 
10 years of mistakes from which we could learn 10 years that we cannot allow for another 10 years to take the same shape just because then it bastardizes something that there's so much blood, sweat and tears that went into creating a, a good on paper dispensation. Now it needs to become good in practice. Thanks for that, Nigeria. Now over to you, Nanjalam. Nigeria mentioned a very uh, important point in Kenya's history, which was the promulgation of a new constitution, which came into effect in 2013, when the new government came in and we moved into a devolved government. But obviously, till today, there's a lot of confusion. Yes, a lot of effort and focus was put on the governors, and now localities have their own resources. But that came with its own baggage. It's actually evident that we haven't, we hadn't matured as a society. So the same problems are in central government, especially that were one big problem of massive corruption crept into most local governments. And the development that we wanted to see at the local level didn't quite pan out as expected. So the pros and cons of that move, what's your analysis of where Kenya is close to about 10 years after the promulgation of a new constitution? Well, first of all, I want to disaggregate the new constitution from the devolution. I know devolution is a principle, policy, whatever in the new constitution, but I want to disaggregate that because I agree with Nigeria. I think the process of passing the new constitution was such a demonstration of civic intent and power, and it was so important, and it's a shame that it stalled in many ways. One of the first things that happened with the new constitution was when this administration came in is they started to gut various key provisions and we kind of watched it slowly start to atrophy and the the places where we went for recourse, the, the judiciary especially, very important moments, key decisions that reinforced the constitution, but we also had key decisions that were complicit in undermining the constitution. And just on a practical level, one thing that people really are not aware of is that there isn't an official Kiswahili translation of the constitution. And that, to me, demonstrates something really important about the way that the process of constitution making has stalled, because we are officially a bilingual country, and there should be official laws should be readily and immediately available in both languages. At least that's just like the first stage to indicate that there is an impetus to make this uh, piece of law, piece of legislation incorporated into like our daily daily lives. So I want to disaggregate those things because I, my feelings, and this is a very unpopular opinion in civic society, I'm not a huge fan of devolution. And the reason I'm not a huge fan of devolution is that I think it made the government too big. I think it made the government too big and it made it too expensive. I think for me, devolution, uh, I see where it works really well. Like if you go to rural, especially if you go to Northern Kenya, but rural Kenya, especially, I think it's been really good for bringing government closer to the people. And I don't remember who did this study, but their statistics show that Kenya gets completely new local government. Like people get voted out 67 or 65% of all legislatures get voted out every five years. So in some ways, devolution has injected this, has brought a connection toward between government and grass and people in rural Kenya in a tremendous way. I think the challenge is that the vast majority of Kenyans are, don't live in rural areas. And I feel like we've gone from one extreme to the other. We've gone from the extreme where government was so highly centralized in urban areas 
that rural areas were just not getting served. And now we've kind of gone to the other extreme where this government is very responsive to what's happening in hyper-local environments. But then you'd think about, for example, the way in which elections in Nairobi run, like the people who decide who gets to win MCA, the people who decide who gets to win, a lot of them are very small locations relative to the size of the entire ward. And that complicates the conversation and representation, right? It complicates the conversation on where is my MCA? What is my MCA doing? Because your MCA doesn't actually need you. Your MCA doesn't need you. He needs his base. He needs to activate that base every five years. And once that base is activated, then he can sort of go on and do whatever he wants or she can go on and do whatever she wants and doesn't have to come back to you and ask for your uh, endorsement or your participation. So I have very complex feelings about devolution and I know civic society people will give me a hard time about this, but I, I think that it really has made government very big and very expensive. And I think that there hasn't been enough follow through with thinking about, well, does Nairobi need wards? Or was the problem that we had too few provinces? I feel like maybe we didn't need eight provinces but do we need 47 counties, right? Wasn't there something in between eight and 47 that might have gotten us closer to where we needed to be? And the other thing about devolution that also makes me uncomfortable is that so many of our counties correspond to ethnic, sort of this Bantustan sort of structure. And I think it reinforces ethnic identities in a way that in the long term might be counterproductive. Ethnic federalism is problematic has always been problematic. Look at Ethiopia, right? Ethnic federalism, what it does is that it brings the allocation of central government resources closer to questions of identity. And the thing is, you can't argue identity. Identity is not a political position. It's not a political opinion. It's part of your makeup and it's so fluid and it's so changeable. And once we make the allocation of resources almost one-to-one uh, -one correlated to ethnic identities, then the nature of political contestation changes. I'll give you an example of what happened in Kiambu, I think two or three years ago, when the governor of Kiambu said that businesses in Kiambu, 60% of businesses had to be owned by residents of Kiambu. Well, Kiambu is a bedroom county of Nairobi, right? There are many people who live in Kiambu, work in Nairobi. It's multi-ethnic. It's people who are leaving the urban sprawl and the pressures of living in Nairobi, moving to Ruaka, moving to all of these neighborhoods. When a governor feels empowered by a political system to make that call in the name of making things better, are we reinforcing a national identity or are we undermining it? And look, I'm the first to acknowledge state-making is an inherently violent process. Like we can romanticize it as much as we want, but the, the thing, if you look at history and you look at how states become, go from being ideas to becoming entities that move, that work, that do things, it's a violent process. Something gets broken before you get to the next stage. I just feel like we have gone from one extreme to the other and there isn't enough political will to mitigate the risks that ethnic federalism presents. And you have these counties like Isiolo, which are 50-50. You have counties like even just Garissa, counties that on paper, you assume one thing, but actually on the ground are incredibly, what's the word, heterogeneous, like they're very multicultural. 
when you then put pressure on the political system there to respond to the question of ethnic identity, I feel like it creates a lot of problems that we haven't really thought through. So that's my hesitation with devolution. I think that I want it to work and I've seen it work in many places. I've been to rural Turkana and Marsabit and I've seen people who don't know who the president is. This really ha genuinely happened in 2017 talking to people in Mandera, they don't know who the president is because the president, Uhuru Kenyatta has been to Mandera once or twice, I think in his presidency, but they know who their MCA is. They know who their woman rep is. They know all of these people. And so when the election comes around every five years, they know who they need to hold accountable. And that is good. I'm just pushing for what was in between eight and 47 and how can we capture the spirit of that, even if we're not necessarily going to undo the work that's been done in passing this super progressive constitution? Thanks for that, Njali. You brought up a, a lot of points, and we'll get to identity later. But still on the constitution and the complexity of the constitution. So obviously, we, the constitution making in Kenya ha ha happened in stages. It didn't happen at once, especially it's been a long journey. And obviously, from the 90s, once multi-party democracy was restored, long and arduous journey. And then post-2007, you have a lot of attention in the country. And all of a sudden, it's like, yes, we, uh, a new constitution is going to be an, uh, the answer. And we are kind of seeing the fractures of the new, of the constitution, right? Mm -hmm. It's brilliant on paper, and it has its, its levels of brilliance. But now you've actively participated in civil society. And one of the arguments against civil society in a lot of African countries that it's, it is funded with a certain dogma or you look at the money line, you know, there's certain principles that are being funded so that a certain agenda can be furthered. And would you say the way the constitution was structured, there were certain scenarios of Kenyan society that are not properly accounted for. And you've talked about folks in the periphery and actually anywhere north of Marsabit is all the folks that will say, listen, Kenya is back in Marsabit. In some cases, they'll tell you it's YOLO. But at least now Marsabit has kind of uh, grown. But north of Marsabit town, not the county, but north of Marsabit town, people will be like, Kenya is another country. We don't kind of feel that we're part of the country. Did we leave out a lot of people in this country in terms of the conversations and has that process been hijacked by the political elite? Oh, is that still for me? Well, I'll say this. I think the process of writing the constitution was incredibly inclusive. We had the referendum. We had a lot of conversations. I remember that they actually published that the, there is no official Kiswahili translation, but there is an unofficial Kiswahili translation. And I remember it was published in the newspaper uh, in small bits and pieces so that people could read and keep up with it. I think the process of having the conversation about the constitution, it was not linear. It was not straightforward. It was definitely riddled with um, political compromises and all of that conversations. But I think all on balance, I feel like it was okay. I feel like the challenge though is, first of all, the imagined geography of Kenya, I think distorts our appreciation of where Kenyans live, what their political interests are. And I think politicians know this and they capitalize on this and it distorts the political outcomes. So you've been talking about north of Marsabit, north of Marsabit, but actually anything north of Nanyuki, 
you literally will go into a village and people will ask you, how is Kenya, right? Nanyuki. And you will find this, this juncture that devolution is really contributing towards closing this gap. But at the same time, it's left big chunks of the country beyond this imagined geography, this imagined division. It's like we're having two or three conversations that are happening alongside each other, but we're not actually speaking to each other. And so when we go to the ballot box where these three different Kenyas are responding to different pressures and different perspectives, and there's not really a, a concrete effort to try and get us all into the same page. I think the process of passing the constitution was probably the last really big effort to try and get us all on the same page. And the three Kenyas I'm talking about are um, the, the rural poor, right? The people who are in the five Northern counties away from urban centers, the rural rich, right? There are people who live in rural areas who are not poor. They are people who own enormous tracts of land, who are growing commercial agriculture, all of that stuff. So there is a significant constituency of the rural rich. Maybe I mean four Kenyas. Then you have the urban middle-class rich and you have the urban poor. And the interest, the political interest, the way in which they're communicated, cultivated, whatever, it's like we're just in parallel to each other. And every five years, we have to try and find a way of making it all work. But the way our political system is structured, after those five years, we kind of collapse back into our individual Kenyas and we go about our business because the conversation doesn't always flow. Think about how the COVID vaccine has been rolled out, right? Rural rich Kenyans, middle-class Kenyans got vaccinated within hours, days of vaccines landing in Kenya. Rural rich people, people who have access to level four hospitals, people who have access to even level three hospitals also got vaccinated fairly quickly. But we still have huge numbers of urban poor in Nairobi who haven't been vaccinated. We have, and then we have the urban poor who will have never seen a doctor, have never seen a nurse. If they're lucky, once um, every two weeks or once a week, a dispensary nurse comes down and gives malaria medication and all of that stuff. The challenge towards imagining a political, a shared political future begins with reimagining the geography and the population of this country and starting to articulate a truly national conversation. It is a difficult uh, job. It's what the legislature is supposed to be doing. It's not what the legislature is doing. And, and so from the civil society perspective, how do you do that? How do you take on the work of government in terms of articulating a national discourse and then using it, right? And then making it part of the, the demand for change, articulating the demand for change. And it's a big job. And I think, I, I feel like we haven't sat with the discomfort of inequality and separatedness, separateness in this country. And I think that's one of the major stumbling blocks that devolution done right should have addressed. But as you mentioned in the question, it's not necessarily being done right. And so in my perspective, it's actually deepening that inequality rather than addressing it. I hope I've answered your question. Yeah, yes, you have. And, uh, you've introduced a lot more questions, but we'll get to other points after we hear from Nigeria. Nigeria and Nanjala mentioned a very important point on identity. And 
in your field, I mean, you've done a lot of work and done a lot of research on how Kenyans interact digitally. Now, I'd like you to kind of give us a commentary on identity and how it's showing up in Kenya. So you've got your folks in rural areas, and we all know that Kenyans, more or less, we tend to identify ourselves with, we tend to identify ourselves along tribal or ethnic lines. But now you're looking at the digital Kenyan. How has identity played with Kenyans on Twitter or Kenyans identifying themselves on digital platforms? Yeah. Thanks for bringing it to digital because it's like if we go into the uh, legacy issues of identity, we could enter some slippery slopes. So two things intersect there. There's a generational aspect to the identity formation and the access to these digital tools. And in some ways, I kind of get frustrated when I look at what issues are being covered in the type of polling done either by media or polling actors in the sense that this election 2022, for example, is going to have a significant number of eligible voters born after the year 2000 or born after Moy, for example, right? Coming of age in an era of digital, in an era of quote unquote new Kenya, depending on how many times Kenya is new. And I don't know if we know for sure how they identify in their Kenyanness. Now, in the digital realm over the last, say, two decades, what we've seen is we form an identity as Kenyans when there's some either external threat or threat greater than each of us. Remember how we all rallied around events like Westgate and others like that. Or when another country just becomes a mere annoyance based on how they talk about us, you see a Kenyanness emerging at that point. But how we see issues beyond that is something that needs deeper research. And unfortunately, a lot of the support for this kind of um, inquiry is just not there to Nanjala's point about reimagining how we figure out or how we even understand ourselves. So I'm waiting to see, for example, with this election, how that so-called youth vote, and by youth vote in this case, I mean this generation born after Moi. One, how they're registering to vote. We've just seen that IBC has said out of the 6 million um, eligible voters, I think a majority were supposed to be first-time voters, only about 2.5 million have registered to vote. And there was a very key thing, the way it was framed in one of the papers yesterday, that when IBC was trying to conduct its voter education or whatever they call it, people told them they're looking for food to eat. So is there a new formation of identity with that generation that is so disenfranchised because on the longer arc of the divides of the different Kenyas, there is a common thread emerging amongst those who are dispossessed becoming a majority. Is that creating a new identity? And then within that, a subset who use hashtags like Ikokazi KE, right? Where people sh share about the qualifications and it's the most heartbreaking thing to see in this country. How we were told we have educated people, but we have the opportunities and it's just not present. And so you see that forming a lot. And you wonder, would those people in sharing in that kind of community figure out that they're not alone regardless of where in the country they come from? And then another layer to that too is who has access to even use these platforms, right? The irony about this government is having come um, into power touting how they'd be digital and all that jazz, the cost of actually connecting has increased. So the cost of um, affording a connecting device and maintaining a connection via your, your telco, because they've insisted on applying a tax to that, the same way they've applied tax to books and so on and so forth. So the number of people who can engage in these places were already were never going to be representative of the country, but now more so, we could very much be talking amongst ourselves and be a filter bubble. We may not even 
form a significant enough uh, portion of an identity in Kenyans, KOT, whatever that is, the amorphousness of it, when it comes to the processes of civic engagement, which also we have not figured out how to make exist beyond election processes. Those become new areas we have not yet found sufficient ways to inquire, but really do sit at the fact that there are demographic shifts paired with the economic disenfranchisement, paired with, you know, adoption of new tools. I'd love to hear from a prospective first-time voter, for example, if they check out the news, what inspires them to check out the news? Is it because they're home with their parents or is it because they get their news better that way? They want to know about the country. We don't know things about that with that these generational shifts. So these are big questions that have not been asked yet. We don't see them represented it's even in the sort of campaigning we're seeing going on right now, but are a strong undercurrent that make me, the more I work in this, the more humble I am in the kinds of questions I'm asking. And the more I want to always iterate that as much as we see a lot of digital activity, it's such a microcosm, we should never think of it as necessarily representative. Thanks for that, Nanjira. Now, Nanjela, over to you. You've been working in the global sphere for very long, and in your current job, you obviously oversee content and activism and just people expressing themselves at the global level. Now, what we've seen over the last five years, especially with the growth of digital media and all these platforms and more people are getting online, more people are expressing themselves. And the goal, when you look at 2011, when right at the the middle of the Arab Spring, you're like, no, it's the level of expression and the whole world is going to change and, and whatnot. And then five years down the line, you're seeing the rise of nationalism and far-right nationalism. You're seeing the rise of fascism you're seeing the right of very anti-democratic ideals and tendencies, which we thought the world left in the 50s and 40s. What is your take in terms of what is happening globally and what is happening in Africa and what is happening in Kenya? Okay, first of all, I'm not that old, so thank you. Secondly, I don't remember the 50s. I wasn't there for that. It's Newton's second law, I think. Every action always produces an equal and opposite reaction. Every revolutionary energy will always generate uh, counter-revolutionary energy. And standing guard, if there's one big lesson of political progress in history, it's you have to stand guard over revolution, otherwise it will be hijacked by the counter-revolution and become a far worse version of what you were trying to revolt against. That is the lesson of the Arab Spring. That is the lesson of the First World War, Second World War, Cold War. That's the lesson that I think is here. Right now, we're in the middle of a counter-revolution against all the progressive energy that was um, unleashed in the 2000s, right? Again, uh, the Arab Spring was probably the most visible manifestation of something that was happening all over the world is that people wanting to be part of their political uh, governments in a way that really the, the previous cycle would have been towards the end of the Cold War, the push to remake um, the world af- after this whole uh, East-West uh, division, to move beyond that and really start to remake our societies. So what we're seeing in the 2000s is another manifestation of that. It's that people had been finding themselves and redefining themselves. And the internet is making it easier for people to reimagine their communities, to learn different histories, to push back, to challenge, to organize. 
But the most, I always tell activists this when I do trainings, power learns and power adapts. And so it's a constant, Angela Davis says, it's freedom is a constant struggle. You constantly have to be vigilant over a revolution. Otherwise the counter-revolutionary energy will eat it, will eat your revolution and will destroy it from the inside. I think that this right-wing backlash that we're living uh, in this moment is a counter-revolutionary energy that manifests in different ways. It's different faces of the same energy. It's people who are benefiting from the status quo getting anxious that equality might undermine um, whatever advantages that they had. And it's weird. The most right-wing people, the people who are actually invading the, the Capitol Hill in the U.S. and the people who are protesting refugees in the UK or whatever, are people who did not benefit. <laughs> they were like on the lowest or the lower rungs of that previous uh, system. They just felt like those little morsels, the scraps that were falling off from the table are being threatened. And therefore they go over and above what is normal or sensible to defend it. This counter-revolutionary energy is reacting to the op optimism and the hope that existed towards the end of uh, the 1990s, the noughties, when people really started to imagine different political futures after the end of the Cold War. And so I think it's a reminder for vigilance and it's a reminder that a major tragedy of politics is always that bad people are somehow almost always more organized than good people. And there's, because there's a critical mass of people who think that if they just keep their heads down and don't bother anything, anyone, everything's gonna work out fine. And it's those people who really make it difficult for the revolution to be defended because the people who are willing to step out and, and defend the right thing are just don't have the numbers, don't have the, the energy, don't have the momentum. And so I think we're in a counter-revolutionary moment that requires a global vigilance and this is one thing also that is a litmus test, right? The way the world treats the most vulnerable people is an indicator of where global politics is going, is and is heading. And for me, I've made this case multiple times and I'll make it again in this space. The way that we've been treating refugees in the last 10 years was the litmus test, was the indicator of the hell that was coming because when we treated refugees better not ideally but better in the shadow of the um, second world war putting in place all of these structures and all of that stuff it was an indicator of somewhat not universal but intent we wanted to be good to the people who have the least right and that's the indicator what do we desire to be what kind of societies do we imagine that we are well we imagine that we are the kind of society that is kind and welcoming to the people who have the least. When we stop imagining ourselves as those kinds of society, it's an indicator that something else is coming down the pipeline. Because then comes this search for the next vulnerable group. Okay, we've put all our refugees in camps. Who can we target next? People who have identities that have always been at the margins, Somalis, Nubians. Okay, we've excluded Somalis and Nubian people from our identity system. Who do we target next? Well, women have too much power in politics. What is this women rep position? 
let's get it off the table because right now women, we're feeling that we're giving them too much. Who's next? People with disabilities. Why do we dedicate 10% of our budget to people with disabilities? Let's get rid of that. That is the logic, right? It's like the momentum that picks up of exclusion. It picks up and it picks up the next group and the next group and the next group. And many people have said it more eloquently than me, but it's worth reinforcing. And then they came for me and there was nobody left to speak up for me. That's the constant energy that is in the world that we're always trying to stay ahead and we're always trying to defend against. And I think where we are right now in the world, if you look at how refugees and displaced people are being treated, that is the litmus test. That is the indicator that things have started to go wrong. And the indicator was when the United States, for example, accepted that it was okay to keep children in cages indefinitely, and many of those kids are still in cages. When the Kenyan government accepted that it would be okay to return Somali refugees to a country that was still in conflict, and we said, well, they're not really of us. And the Australian government normalized rounding up people and keeping them in offshore detention sites until people were setting themselves on fire, right? That thousands of people who have died in the Mediterranean Sea over the last 10 years, that was the indicator. All of this stuff, all these things that we're worrying about, the rise of the right, digital authoritarianism, for me, it's the next manifestation of an energy that we were not vigilant enough defending our global politics against. Sorry, that's a long answer, but I feel very strongly about those issues. No, thanks for that. Fantastic. It's always good to put things in, in, in perspective, especially with the global force and what we're seeing with technology, which brings me to my next question for Nigeria, is the effect of algorithms and you've talked about filter bubbles and how a lot of these are influenced by algorithms in one way or another. And for a very long time, going back to what Nanjala just said, is like maybe society was not vigilant enough. And in the case of the rise of technology influence filter bubbles and how technology or algorithms kind of group people into what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And this has been manipulated by groups who figured out that they can either misinform people or it's that classic PR agenda where you can actually manufacture consent. And it's become ridiculously easy to do at scale. Well, it's still complex, but it's much easier to do at scale now with technology. And it's brought about issues with Cambridge Analytica, who had operations in Kenya. They helped the Jubilee government do whatever they needed to do to enforce or reinforce a particular narrative. Now, in the context of Kenya, are we prepared for this new world? What are the effects and what should we be on the lookout for in an election year? Right. So, I mean, with with the case of Kenya and elections and social media, back in 2013, some of us had already figured out some things that uh, much of the overarching narrative about the role of technology and civic liberation Arab Spring was that we know our society and how divided we get around certain political issues. And the adoption of technology was not going to bypass that. So we worked on mechanisms um, to start getting our own local uh, actors like NCIC, but also global platforms like Twitter to look into this. But I remember even back then trying to speak to different actors, both local and, and global, the headiness around what technology is going to change was this rose-tinted glasses everybody had on. 
And here we set up mechanisms to, to, to monitor how people were using these platforms to express themselves. And it was a natural extension of what typically would be happening maybe in conversations in living rooms across the country around maybe what they see in the news and the reactions to that. Now, just fast forward to 2022, it's just become more mainstream. It's a really sad state of affairs that certain things have to happen in the West for them to be taken seriously, when in fact countries like Kenya have been the canary in the coal mine throughout this um, entire digitalization process and the impacts or the nexus of technology and society. And we've been at the forefront of trying of showing even and writing and, and articulating that it's not just as easy as give people the internet and all other good things will be added unto them. There are real issues that are being surfaced. So we also don't want to make it look like back then technology was the cause of it, but it was an extension of the distrust or the issues that remain unresolved in our society. Now today, with the, the business models that are able to be sort of hacked around the, the kinds of platforms we have, yes, it's absolutely easy to manufacture consent. Personally, I've had to switch off the trending topics in Kenya because you're not going to get any useful information. But it does make me work for those who only um, use these platforms. So again, back to my hypothesis about the digital natives, for lack of a better frame, folks who um, are coming of age are going probably to go to the ballot box, but their primary source of news is these platforms. If what they're only exposed to is based on those filter bubbles that are created based on their friends, their followerships, and so on and so forth, we could all be, the situation could be that we are all on these platforms, but we are not speaking to one another. So we're back to replicating the offline reality that has had politicians take advantage of dividing this country or keeping us divided on certain fronts. So you have this online, offline reality being blurred all the more. It's uh, one of those things where it's not just about the platforms and what they can do. Obviously, we keep trying to make them listen to us uh, and listen to our context and stop analyzing what happens in these parts of the world using a Western lens and dedicate resources to actually addressing the issues that are coming up here. But even for us to realize that every day when you get on this platform, for example, ask yourself, okay, based on what you have been exposed to in terms of individual takes or news or whatever, what have you not been exposed to? Because those are some of the individual and collective ways we can start obfuscating the effect technology is having on us. So there's that dual responsibility where, yes, we keep pushing for the platforms to do better, but we ourselves have to ask ourselves, while existing in this reality, what kind, just ask yourself once a week, what kind of filter bubble have I found myself into? What have I not found out? What have I not found out about the perspective of this country or about an issue that suddenly has everybody's attention? And it sucks because part of this always places an unfortunate and unfair burden on individuals. But it speaks to a bigger issue. We've been dancing around in this conversation. How do we organize things that go beyond a season? So how do we organize mechanisms and, and, and strategies and resistances that go beyond this flashpoint moments like elections? That for me remains a bigger question about the state of Kenya or the Kenya we want and how we can achieve it through both online and offline ways is a unique Kenyan possibility with an imaginary applied to it. Thanks for that, Nigeria. So we will open up the floor to audience questions right after the hour. You can DM either at Mongo Capital or African Censored. You can ask for the mic and you will more than likely be given a slot to ask the panelists questions. I will move over to you now, Nanjala. You've been one of the main analysts actually looking at the Kenyan political landscape and global political landscape on, on various issues. But I want to put you on the spot here to ask you what happened to the Kenyan opposition 
and what can be done to revive it? It's nine o'clock and you're asking me like meta questions. What happened to the Kenyan opposition? I think one overarching issue that isn't just about electoral politics, but is about society and well, uh, community in Kenya is we are fundamentally a low trust society. And trust is such a key value in building community and social networks. Unfortunately, the proxy for trust in a lot of our lives is ethnicity. I will go to this guy because he is, and it's not even ethnicity in a linear way, it's really big family, right? It's not that uh, a Luya person knows that they can speak to any Luya person and they will be helped. It's that there's a specific second cousin twice removed person and and then when you zoom out on relation then you end up with this network right and so i think we have made trust we have made this identity question a proxy for trust and trust needs to work beyond that and needs to cut across some of these intangible divisions in order for the state's building and for the political projects to work so i think the first thing that's happened is that we were a low trust society under kenyatta the first and Moy, because there was a deliberate effort to undermine the networks that made trust possible. There is infiltration of student groups. There is infiltration of church groups. There is arrests. There is spying. There is kidnappings, disappearings, mysterious deaths. All of that has a psychic effect. And one of the things that it does is it undermines trust. And the generation teaches their children that trust is always going to be more contingent than it should be. And that makes it difficult to build networks that exist beyond what is verifiable, provable, uh, attainable, which is the ethnic and, and I would say the social networks, not necessarily one-to-one -one ethnic networks, where trust can manifest safely, right? Where you feel like you can let your guard down. So the first thing I would point to is that the erosion of trust makes building community beyond ethnic consocial networks, it makes it difficult, right? The second thing that I think uh, makes it difficult is trauma. I just don't think that we've spent enough time as a society processing the trauma of what it means to live under an authoritarian regime and thinking about what it means to move beyond that. I think that the Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission was supposed to represent that process of reckoning. And it was incredibly undermined because many of the people who were named in the TJRC ended up back in government or even on the TJRC to begin with. And so reckoning with trauma is a key part of society building. And we don't realize, we want to think that trauma is this kind of new age, hippie, Zungu thing, but actually reckoning with trauma has always been part of the state building project, right? When African-Americans take Brown v. Board of Education, Plessy Ferguson, where they take all of these cases to court. Beyond litigation, there is a process of testifying to injustice. There is a process of reckoning with injustice that is happening. And that starts the process. It doesn't complete it, but it starts the process of reckoning with the trauma that injustice causes. And you see in societies where this trauma isn't faced, that it kind of compounds. And so many of us are still fighting and his children, his offspring, and 
I don't know if I'm the only one who feels like we're stuck in a hamster wheel. We're having the same conversations that we had in 1992, 1997. I don't remember 1988, but there's a cyclical nature that comes from the fact that we are not squarely confronting the injustice. We are not naming the violence that's been inflicted upon us. And, and this goes back to the colonial era as well, naming the injustice of how the home guards edged out the Mau Mau in terms of receiving some kind of healing after the war against colonization, where we can't even name the land injustices that were created by the process of colonization because many of those landowners are still um, amongst us and are still quietly, visibly, but tangibly affecting political outcomes in various parts of the country. So I think trauma is part of it. But I think on the part of the politicians themselves. I think that all of this manifests also in the mutual suspicion that they have of each other and the way in which they allow individual interests to triumph over collective interests. I think that a lot of times they perpetuate or they want to live in a Kenya whereby people don't remember. And for the purposes of political expediency, many of us will play along with the idea that it's okay, it doesn't matter that this particular person oversaw this particular type of violence. It doesn't matter that this particular person was implicated in this other kind of, of systemic violence. But I think the body remembers. And I think people, even if they can't articulate the memory, we remember. And I think what happens when we start to play this game where what we say in the presence of politicians and how we speak about ourselves in the presence of politicians doesn't match what the body remembers, doesn't match our collective memory, doesn't match our truths, then you start to have this disconnect between politics and, and life, right? We're talking a lot about apathy right now and young people not showing up to vote. Well, what happened? the last time young people showed up to vote. In 2017, they showed up to vote in August. They did everything that they were asked. We all did everything that we were asked to do. And then three months later, we had a completely half-assed, pardon my French, terrible political election foisted upon us, right? And then we've spent the last five years pretending that October 2017 never happened. The apathy isn't without cause. It's not irrational. It's not illegitimate, it's rooted in the reality that we all remember, even if we cannot speak that memory in public or together. And I think that's part of what's happening with the politicians. They have to dance around their truths. They have to dance around the knowledge that they have inflicted great harm on each other and other people. And they have to pretend that everything's okay and we're all friends now and we're all holding hands and everything is jolly good, but they all know the reality that whoever they're laughing with on the other side of the table when push comes to shove will choose themselves over the collective good. And I think for me, separate, what I try to tell people all the time in political analysis is we have to stop pretending that politics isn't about people. And we have to stop pretending that it happens in this weird sterile bubble that isn't connected to human behavior and human decision-making. And once you start to bring the human elements back into thinking about 
it's a very colonial mentality when people write about African politics and they talk about structures and they don't talk about people and they don't talk about agents. And this is one of the things, for example, in digital democracy that I was writing against, that you can't just talk about political parties and state house and all of these things and not talk about the human elements that go into shaping our political realities. And so for me, the human elements are really key here. It's trauma. It's failing to reckon with that. It's trust. And the very last thing I would say is, well, and this is connected to the trauma question, the way in which we pass it on, right? And we normalize trauma and we normalize harm and we accept that it's okay that, you know, Samantha Pender was clubbed over the head while she was in her mother's arms and received crumbs crumbs off the table and no form of real justice and no form of real restitution that Willy Kimani was killed and the mechanisms swung in to obfuscate. Thankfully, there was some kind of effort to ad address that injustice. This Yala killings, we've normalized it to the point where it's like we're numbing ourselves and not reckoning with the trauma of everything that's happening around us. So I would say that the politicians are making decisions in a low trust context and they are responding to harm and trauma that they have not dealt with and, and putting their self-interest above the communal interest. And I think that's what happened to the opposition. Half of them ended up back in government because it served their political interests. And the other half are right now angling to try and get back into government to serve their political interests. And very few people of principle are saying, I'd rather stand by truth and healing and lose than forfeit my principles and my position to get a taste of power. So that's, I mean, that's a long-winded answer, but I think, yeah. Okay, Nanjala, if you can hear me, this is John Allen. Uh, I've been listening to the, the conversation and the many, many very heavy truths that you're dropping this evening, you and, and Nanjira both. And I, I just wondered to myself, just borrowing from some of the things I heard in another Twitter space about torture in Uganda. One of the things that I think it was Ivan Okuda who, who was speaking about this, the kinds of things that he witnessed when applauding uh, the, the hosts of the space and, and the team that AIIJ said, is that for once we have elite consensus that this is something wrong and we need to do something about it. So just picking up from where you just left off, is there such a thing as a certain quantum of consensus around what really ails this country that then now will force us to move? Or do you think that we are too divided, too defeated to actually move forward? And I ask this also with the context of 2002. Many people thought that Khan would never leave, but it left. So yeah, Nanjala, you can take a crack at that and maybe Nanjira can come in with an answer as well. No, I don't think we're on the same page about what's happened in Kenya. I really don't. And, and again, for me, this goes back. I spend a lot of time working on colonial archives um, because right now I'm thinking about identity systems and the Huduma number, but also in relation to the Kipande system. 
And the fact that, just give by illustration, one of the main things that the resistance to colonization was organized around in Kenya was the resisting the Kipande system. M. Karaoke's well, in the legis- in parliament, why do we still have this Kipande system when this was the thing that we were fighting against? If you go back to the Hansard, all the way to the first Africans who were admitted into legislative council, this was the thing that they said we must get rid of because it dehumanizes us, right? Here we are, almost a hundred years later, more than a hundred years later, reimagining the Kipande for the digital age. The root cause, the thing that we rejected, we said we never grappled with what it meant to have that t- dog tag around your neck and the humiliation. We're just thinking about, let's just throw some tech at it and it will fix the underlying social political conditions that made the Kipande so deplorable to our forefathers and mothers. I don't think we're on the same page about what ails us. And I think when you say Moy left, I don't think Moy left. I think Moy, the person, might have left, but I think the structures that he built still very much dominate Kenyan politics because we have a memory problem. We don't have a collective archive that is representative of our political truth. So if we can't even agree on what happened, how can we agree to move forward from it? Another example I'll give you is, like I said, I spend a lot of time in archives and I'm always struck by how much Kenyan archives are edited, erased, willy-nilly, and entire episodes that we all saw. We all saw Lucy Kibaki slap that journalist in the standard media group. We all saw it on television. Go and try and find it in an archive. Go and try and find it in the standard group archives. Go and try and find it in the nation archives. Go and try and find it in the national archives. It's been erased. When you think about the week of, if you go and do research on the week that Robert Oko was murdered or his body was found, it's weird. I was writing an essay about the Nyayo Pioneer car, and the Nyayo Pioneer car was launched on February 19th, 1990. And Robert Oko's body was found on February 12th, 1990. I wasn't even looking for the Oko story. I really wasn't looking for it. I was looking for the media hype around the Nyayo Pioneer car. I challenge you, go to the archives and try and find the newspapers from that week of 1990 in Kenya. So you see this gaps in memory have a long-term impact because what are we then telling the next generation? There's been a massive, and Nigeria alluded to this, 60% of Kenyans are below the age of 30. That means 60% of Kenyans were born after, maths is not my strong suit, 1992. 60% of Kenyans are not old enough to remember February 12th to February 19th, 1990. Have their parents told them about February 12th, uh, February 19th, 1990? Have the newspapers told them? Have the television told them? Have the keepers of memory done their job of transmitting memory so that the next generation isn't reifying, repeating the mistakes of the past, isn't reacting to fighting ghosts that they don't know and they can't name and they can't identify. I love that thing that Yvonne Adyambo wrote in Dust and I cite it a lot of time. Kenya has three national languages, English, Kiswahili and silence. And this silence, it's like a specter. It's like a ghost 
that hovers over all of our political conversations, it makes it hard for us to be honest with ourselves. It makes it hard for us to be honest with each other. And therefore it makes it hard for us to demonstrate political behavior that is true to our political circumstances. Instead of having people fighting inequality and injustice, we have people who think that if they just play along, they can be the next generation of millionaires. If they just go along with this political, whatever is sexy in politics this week, they will also eat the crumbs from the table, not knowing that what their parents know, which is that this carousel goes round and the crumbs never fall off the table. You just end up being a lackey for a system that's going to chew you up and spit you out. And I will finish by saying this. I would love for every Kenyan, if possible, to read um, All About Love by Bell Hooks, because I think it's a really important thing. I spend a lot of time, like I said, thinking beyond structures and thinking beyond voting and everything. What I would want, when you, when you invited me and you said the Kenya that we want, more than anything, what I want for Kenya, I want Kenyans to love themselves enough to choose wisely. I want Kenyans to love themselves enough to dream of a better future. I want Kenyans to love themselves enough to imagine that their cities deserve trees and sidewalks and parks. I want Kenyans to love themselves enough to reckon with the harm that has been inflicted upon them and to respond to it in a constructive way and in a productive way. And it's not an easy thing to articulate in the political science that is grounded in this Western epistemology, this Western way of doing political science, but it is rooted in the way in which our societies are structured. African indigenous knowledge, African indigenous communities were not grounded in punishment, were not grounded in criminalization. And most of Kenyan traditional societies didn't have kings. We had councils of, it was rooted in consociality, it was rooted in community. And I want Kenyans to love themselves enough to imagine that a similar political trajectory is possible and to fight for that future because we deserve it. Indeed, we do deserve that kind of a future. Nanjira, wow. Um, okay, now I'm just trying to absorb everything that Nanjala has just said, but I, I want us to sort of root ourselves now in the current contest or contestations for power. And you've spoken a lot about our identity and the erasure of any claims to, or, or very many claims to our identity, our digital identities. Now, just broadening this and, and sort of speaking to some of the same things that Nanjala was saying, what can a Kenyan do? What can a young Kenyan who feels that there's something wrong, they might not be able to put a, a name on it because if they look, as Nanjala said, in, in the archives, they, they really can't diagnose what the problem is. But what tools do you think are available today for a young Kenyan to really stand up and, and fight for what it is that they want, for that future that they want? And what if there's no history that binds us together, like even this contemporary history, then what are the things that can really bind us together that we can agree about that then we can start to fight for? And do you think they're within reach, possibly within the next few months? Our anger binds us. It's an anger. If I was just reflecting on the fact that 92, 2002, and seemingly 2022 elections or election seasons 
really bring us against on something we're against. So we, we have more of a pattern of voting out rather than voting for. And if we take it for a moment to just say that's okay, what anger can we go into against the ballot on August 9th? Because it could be what we're seeing in apathy in terms of registering to vote, where the legitimacy um, of the whole process is not being conferred by people just saying they're not going to vote, or sentiments of why would I spend another couple of hours lining up and it has not done anything for me. If we meet ourselves where we are, I think we can also work from there because I'm worried of trying to give a prescription that removes us from where we are, which is we are angry. I, I defy to find except a very small microcosm of Kenyans who is not angry. Now, how do we work with that anger as a starting point? Because it is, I saw this beautiful saying yesterday that anger is justice, is a way of justice trying to, to articulate itself. How do we work with that? In fact, yes, anger is justice forming in the body. Anger is boundaries. Anger is the protector of the self. And in this case, it's not just the individual self. It is us, the self, in whatever identity you feel represents you in this space we are calling Kenya today. I think if we even just think about between now and August, our organization around that, I'm angry that the trees, 2,500 trees for a 27-kilometer stretch have been taken down. And the, the, the language around how that's going to be replaced is in, the, in some future, some ethos type of vibe. How do you then seed that anger? And, and if it feels like every five years, we only get that chance to say enough, you take it there. But then we challenge ourselves to say, after August 9th, or whenever the date of this election will be, we, we go beyond um, arranging our emotions or our actions or our inactions on that single date. But starting from where we are, which is truly that we are angry. On the element about digital, the, the saddest thing to actually ever speak about how digitalization of governance in Kenya has gone is that it has not been designed to in, uh, disrupt the previous systems, the, the Ukoloni system, the Kipanda system or other. It is actually to entrench them because a few people have realized it is in their interest to accrue that much more power through tools like these rather than do things the way they intended. And in Kenya in particular, we are in a unique situation where the government is caught in a bind having sold itself as a digital economy. They could not readily jump for the internet shutdown tools that other governments are able to use. But we are existing in such a toxic online space based on all the kinds of trolling you'll see on a hashtag. If today we were using, say, Kenya, we want as a hashtag, by the fifth tweet, we know what we'd be seeing. That has become the other way to sort of suppress any actual co-creation of an alternative civic space. So being mindful of that is, is another thing. Not underestimating the enemy we're dealing with. They keep, the enemy keeps morphing. The enemy keeps morphing and we are still left to feel like our anger is invalid. I think if we validate our anger and you figure out in different ways how to make this election season have it register, it could complicate the trajectory we find ourselves on, which is rather depressing, you know. But I, I feel like to the language that Nanjala and I have already now gotten to, which is around the psychology of things, if we just also start validating these feelings and start writing them or speaking to them or, I don't know, I, I really am trying to not be prescriptive because it manifests so differently. But for the 400 or so of us who are here, who let's argue that we, we share the same online space, What's the one thing we can agree upon that we would take on? And not just for a one-week hashtag vibes thing. That's a sad thing about also digital platforms. And I remember 
back in the day sued when we, we we all first got on Twitter, we had the online offline where we would start conversations like these, would meet offline and try and create some action. So it was that kind of trying to go against the tide of things. I think we really need to revisit those elements. We had little tools and strategies we've tried over the years as a people. If we start bringing them back and stacking them one against the other in a consistency, still within the framework of the angle we face, we could yet find ourselves writing a different story. Okay, thanks a lot, Nanja. I, I just made the mistake. I said I wasn't going to make Nanjira. It was bound to happen. Now, I want to bring um, those of us who are, who are on, on the space this evening to ask your questions or comments. We're going to be opening up uh, or handing over the microphone soon to ask your qu- questions or give brief comments. So you can just raise your hands using the emojis down at the bottom of your screen. But soon, as people are lining up to, to speak, I want to ask you, because you, you started by framing your, your experience largely within the media and a, and a very deep understanding of the media. Now, this is a, a big question, but I think it's one that you can handle. So what then does the media generally do to start to get people creating the Kenya that they want? I'd assume that uh, the media is important enough to have some level of influence in guiding these kinds of discussions and even co-creating, as Nigeria said, the kind of future that, that we have. Yeah, that's a complex question. And here it's the role of media tradition has been the, the fourth estate and print to radio, to TV, to digital media, it evolves. And it just so happens with this current shift in media getting into digital, media has evolved much faster then the traditional gatekeepers of media have been able to keep up with, at least from your traditional journalists and media houses and big media houses and whatnot. So there are certain media houses that have adopted the shift and kind of have transitioned and others, especially in developing countries and in particular Kenya, I feel they've kind of were left flat-footed and didn't really know what happened. Okay, I think we, we might have lost Sood, but as he comes back, I want to pose a question, starting with you, Nanjala. You might have answered this in part, but AJ Sadiq asks, is there an air of too far gone in a majority of Kenyans towards getting an ideal nation, looking at voter apathy, loss of trust in government, deep-rooted corruption, and how do we fight it on A, a personal level, and on be a communal and social level. So Sadiq is looking for the tools that he can pick up. We might have answered this, but it, it, I guess it bears repeating. Nanjala. Sure. And I guess I, I could answer it in more practical terms because I gave a very esoteric answer. I think that we have to keep things in perspective, that social change is a process. It's not an event. And that's if there's anything that the last 20 years of Kenyan politics have reinforced, it is that. Social change is a process, it's not an event. And so every day we have to wake up and decide to be different and be better and make the choices that make things better, whether that is refusing to give up the road when the Mheshimiwa with his whatever is barreling down the road, whether it's refusing to participate in whatever it is that is you feel like is the corruption, right? It's refusing to participate in the things that are leading us off the path. And I think that's the first thing is to break it down into the smallest possible units of action that we can take every day and choose to take every day. Speaking up in defense of the natural environment, speaking up in defense of uh, different kind of politics, manifesting, behaving in a way that 
asks for that different kind of politics instead of remaining within the social circles that are predetermined by a class, a society divided by class and ethno-nationalism, moving beyond that and looking beyond that and building communities that are built on something else. For many of us, the only places, those of us who are religious in some ways, the only places where we're properly mixing with people who have different backgrounds from us is on Sundays or on Fridays or days when people go to temple. And I think, how do we do things differently? And I'm sorry, this is an extended answer because this is the other thing that I forgot to mention. One structural thing that's happened in Kenya that is a big reason why we are struggling to articulate a different politics is the loss of the physical public sphere. That we don't really have many places where we can gather that are not religious, that are not bars and restaurants. The moment, the peak of our interaction and our socialization with people who have different social economic backgrounds from us is when we are in high school, right? Because even when you go to university, people already start to collapse into whatever the easiest way of socializing is. It sounds like a throwaway point, but the loss of trade unions, the loss of strong sports clubs, the loss of social uh, centers, the loss of parks, it has a much bigger effect. The theories that uh, political scientists have about the public sphere, they don't start in abstraction. They start from the fact that in New Delhi, when people want to start a protest, they gather at Jantar Mantar and they start to read their demands. That Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner, that's where the conversation starts. And the fact that our equivalent is right now fenced off indefinitely, and there isn't a way for us to articulate that, for me, it's a symptom of this greater loss of civic space. Civic space is not just freedom of expression and freedom of, of association. Civic space is also physical space. We have to be able to gather, to be able to speak, to be able to share our problems, to be able to imagine a shared, a different shared future. So one practical thing that I would put on the table is let's claim back our civic spaces. Let's claim back places where we can gather that are not shaped by religion, or if they are, the way in which religious leaders in Kenya were a big part of the pro-democracy movement. Right now, can we honestly say that our religious leaders are playing that part? Or have they also become part of the problem, right? So what can we do in our daily lives to create a civic space in which we are not drunk on alcohol or drunk on the prosperity gospel? What are we doing to create spaces where people can gather and discuss and share ideas? What is our tree under which we can gather and discuss what's happening in our village. I think once that's one small practical thing that I think will start to have a big difference because if there's anything that we've lost, the death of trade unions, the death of public spaces, civic spaces, all of that is part of the reason why we're having a hard time building different ways of articulating community. Okay, Nanjira, W.E.B. Dubois has this theory, and it's highly contested. I think it was called the Talented Tenth, you know, referring to how there'd be just maybe one in ten uh, Black people who have the level of education and awareness to, to be able to lead that society. First of all, I mean, do you agree that the change will come from a small number of people who perhaps have 
an elevated sense of political education. I guess that the thing that I've been struggling with this evening is that we're very good at diagnosing what we want from what we don't want, which I think is legitimate. But the, the question of how keeps coming up, and that's why I was asking, does, does it come from a small subset of our population? And if not, where does it come from? I'm sorry to sound so flippant about this, but in whose hands? The, the person who occupies the seat of uh, Kotu said at, at, at some point. I, I don't know if you understand my question. It might be rambling a little <laughs> bit, but yeah. In whose hands are <laughs> yeah. we safe? Well, oh, it's a question I think we should continually ask, right? I feel like it's one of those disrupted conversations. One, I am of the view that the age of the matter is dead. The age of waiting for a Mandela to take um, that big you know, leap or sacrifice or whatever is that. But yet we're living through a situation, even in our political metaphors of the last election, being led, finding this person who leads us to canon and elsewhere. But even our bodies are rejecting that as the premise. So this notion that it will take we sacrifice John Allen into the ether of a, a toxic system to save us. Tomorrow he'll have turned because the system will sooner churn him or flip him rather than actually let him do his job. So one, we are contending with that and maybe we've just not found the language for it. We, I always say we've sent in what? We've sent in intellectuals, we've sent in pastors, We've sent in all sorts of brilliant minds cultivated from different spheres into this system. Look at where they are today. Look at what they've become today. It's telling us the age of the matter is dead. Or at least the way we've done it, where we sacrifice and we hope that we are safe in the hands of somebody is not bound to work. So we are being confronted with seeing how effed up the system really is. And it's a hard pill to swallow. And it does bring us to that question of, what do we do? I think we've been doing something. And I feel like we should always make sure we frame these things as the small little steps we're taking, conversations like these, something that has remained regardless of how tides have gone since 2002, is a lot more of us. We can have these conversations. We can banter um, or, or just really express our disdain or our, our dislike of how things are going in different fora and not risk torture chambers for the most part, obviously, or the equivalent. So there's little things we need to go back to and build upon. The, but that big one of realizing, one, the age of the matter is dead. Two, we have to do more than organize for election day, leave us in a situation where we have an opportunity to frame the question, so now what do we, and who's we? Because I think it takes a subset of people, but I don't think it's a, a scattered bunch of individuals. The saviors, the fake saviors, is not it anymore. So I'm not trying to answer that question rather than to complicate it. Okay. I'll come back to Sud. Sud, you're back. And Eric is asking me to ask you about the Kenya that you want in terms of tech and business. Uh, and, and I'd like for you to answer that. But first, something that, that uh, Nanjira has, has touched on. There are no martyrs anymore. And we have sent, we have thrown intellectuals, politicians, orators, even the uneducated at the system, and somehow they have been spat out. They've been spat out, and the system continues to grow and to eat. Then, is is that not an indication that this system, and I use that word advisedly, that this system is the one that just needs to be dealt with, and in perhaps ways that are more unpalatable than many people would want? And by this, I mean. And I hope I'm not picked up after this, but violent revolution. 
how do you supplant a system that has eaten so many people without actually attacking it head on? I thought I'd ask because it's been a question that's bothered me as well. Sud. I think uh, Nanjala alluded to this. You know, power is a painful process. And it is a dirty process getting there. But I think the hard work in Kenya has been done. And the way I look at it, it was an Eric Bainhawker kind of alluded to, but there's someone else who framed it. And, and the framing was you've got physical technology and you've got social technology. And physical technology is all the bits and bytes and the wires and infrastructure and circuits and whatnot. But social technology is coming into how society is structured and the innovation in society. So laws and how governments are structured, how governance is structured, how trust is structured, how justice is structured. And I think in the case of Kenya is that we're already halfway there. What has happened is the state is somewhat regressing or gets captured by uh, a certain group of people. I mean, the actors on the political scene are one and the same. It's one coin, different sides. They change political parties like they change underwear and political parties are just means to attain political power or share the pie. And there's always, I mean, you you look at it from, from 2007, it's always been about power sharing. And there's always this one character that is the architect or is a net beneficiary of all those power sharing agreements. And I think where we need to go back Two is to figure out what is the political ideology of Kenya, what or of at least our, the main political parties, whether we're going to go for a two-party system or a three-party system, but you always have this dominant thing. Like we are pretty much a progressive democracy where you'd have dominance of ideology or the biggest ideologies. And we go back into these ideological grounds. And I think the future is for the youth and you know, the student movements to kind of really go back and, and ask, what is the type of Kenya that we want? What ideologies that do we need to develop or adapt for the society in which we live in and organize around those? And until we go back to those fundamentals, and those are the building blocks of functioning democracy where you have to have some sort of ideological grounding. And once that happens, then the framing of the questions and the framing of organizing become two total, becomes very different from what is happening now. And I think with time, once people kind of get through their political shelf life and political shelf life and people start disappearing through the natural cycles of human nature and everything else, you start seeing a new class of political actors. I think there's hope in the sense that at some point, it's more than likely won't be now, but we know within the next decade or so is there will be a re-rejuvenated sense of organizing and it's, it's about the vigilance that Nanjala was talking about on can we kind of self-correct and see exactly where we're going and kind of change the course of the stream I think she's put up a hand I believe she's she wants to comment on this yeah I wanted to push back on something that you said which is that we develop the ideology and then the functioning democracy happens I think actually it's the other way around I think that ideology political ideas developed from observation Marxism comes from Marx being able to observe post-industrial UK, sitting in the coffee shops, breaking it down, and then coming up with a, a different way of organizing things. I think sometimes we forget that all the theories that we take for granted today in the way we think about politics, it happened the other way around. 
It was Adam Smith watching people. It was Marx watching people, feminism. It's women watching the political dynamics, the social dynamics between men and women and articulating that as a theory. I think the problem that we have is that we are a post-colonial society or we are a post-colonization society. And we exist in this space whereby we are being told about ourselves, rooted in ideas. And it's great. It's actually interesting that right now or just before this, Michelle Mugel was talking about decolonization because I think that's why there's this energy of, of that's what she's articulating is something that people are thinking about now because our ideas of what it means to make political work matter in Kenya are often framed through Western ideas of what politics is and what ideology is. And it's not really been the one effort that there was to articulate a Kenyan political ideology, African socialism, um, was actually a Trojan horse for elite compact and opting out basically of all of the big ideological struggles of the continent, that we are not capitalist, we are not communist, we are not Dar es Salaam, we are pro whoever is going to write us the biggest check, which has been Kenya's political ideology for foreign policy since Kenyatta the first. And so I think I would flip it on its head. I think political ideology honestly genuinely comes from people being in a polis, from people being amongst with each other, being in contact with each other, being able to figure out what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. And I think we are so broken in terms of gender, in terms of ethno-nationalist ethnicity in terms of all of these things. And the solution comes in finding a way of transcending the lines that divide us and articulating the lines that divide us in a way that makes sense for us. And I, I, I keep coming back to, well, feminism, African feminism, right? Pushing us to think about as a woman in Kenya, my biggest struggle is not the same as Raila Odinga's biggest struggle or Uhuru Kenyatta's biggest struggle. Because in my community, for example, I can't own land. So I can't fight about something that I can't own. I'm not going to go out in the streets and throw stones over something that I can't. And this is the situation for the vast majority of women in this country. When you go and ask a woman in Mandera what her primary concerns are, it's I don't want to walk five kilometers, 10 kilometers to go out in search of water. So why isn't water a core political thing for people to debate in Mandera's MCA, Mandera's, what do they call them? County council, whatever. That to me is where the ideology should start from. What is it that is making that impossible for us? Not from communism, socialism, capitalism, whatever the West has already articulated, because those theories were rooted in their observation of their own societies. So what do we see when we observe in our own societies when we articulate our politics in a language that makes sense for us? And in practical terms, I keep going back to this. That energy where we used to go for music fest in high school, where we used to go for science congress, where we used to go for uh, football, for hockey, for whatever, the thing that made it possible for us to move, it's not great that students are setting schools on fire. It's not ideal. Having said that, there's a political anger that Nigeria was talking about that's being articulated in a way that people who don't have the same rubbing up against and interacting with each other 
are not being able to articulate their demands in a clear way. And I feel like I just want to lean into that discomfort. And, and I think part of that is how do we go back to gathering? How do we go back to being in a community so that we can articulate what's wrong with our community so that we can get to the work of fixing? Okay. I, I want us to, to go into like the final round of comments this evening, but there's a question that's been posed by a, a listener to the space this evening. Uh, and this is for all three of you, but I'd like uh, Nanjira to try this and Sud as well. Looking at the various sectors and subsectors of nation building, which countries would you say we can pick building blocks from to form the Kenya we want? Or for example, Finland for its education, Norway for its natural wealth management, etc. Nanjira, why don't you take a crack at that? Personally, I struggle with this notion that we must borrow and I think Nanjala has given us a really good frame. If we were to observe and observe ourselves, observing others and what they've done would build on that. So the problem we've had, and we see this even in um, the rhetoric that the president uses about Kenya being on par with Kina Singapore and others. Often I find like that kind of question around how we could model Kenya based on others' example is just trying to, is a continuation of that, removed from the reality that we first have to see why all those things have not worked. And I'll flip it and say, look, a lot of people observed M-Pesa. South Africa, for instance, tried to go copy and paste M-Pesa because they're like, this is great. It's causing movement. It's something disruptive. Surely South Africa is another market that could have the same. It did not work because there were local factors that complicated that equation. To say that humans are very complex. The situations that we are speaking about today in Kenya have... I, I don't want to make it seem like an exceptional, but we do need to also move back from this notion that we must always gaze externally to figure ourselves out. So we must sit with the fact that we have, for example, peculiar Kenyans. Let me use this frame that um, Michael Joseph gave us a couple of years ago about how when they used to run deals on Safaricom on cheaper uh, call rates back in the day, we would all wait until midnight to make those calls. When last year during the pandemic, one of the measures was to zero rate the cost of moving a thousand bob. What did we do? We moved a thousand bob multiple times. They had to put a limit. So if we focus instead on observing ourselves, we will see something unique about what we're applying on a generic sense technology, right? Or education systems and figure out how they start to figure in our equation. Because this mom, this business of uh, going to just take the best and bits of bobs in theory from everywhere else that are not being contextualized, we're back to the same conversation about our constitution. Good on paper, but not uh, applicable because we have not contextualized. Yeah, so I think if, if I pick countries, I'll get in trouble here with uh, Nigeria and uh, Nanjala, but I will answer the question in one or four. I think I agree with Nigeria that we have to look at ourselves as a country and see how we can progress and design, develop solutions and policies for us as a society, knowing that we live in a globalized context, but we also have this post-colonial baggage that we have to kind of shake off with time and you know, these things don't happen automatically our our judges still wear funny things on their heads wigs that are very un-kenyan but it is what it is now i think eric asked this question in terms of the kenya i want uh, and how do i frame it from a tech and business policy point of view and nigeria did mention that we went through this wave where kenya was the hotbed of tech in Africa, and we had this brilliant M-Pesa system, and everyone was looking at us and everything else. But you look at what has happened over the last 10 years, I find very disappointing, especially having very qualified practitioners in government who are supposed to be driving policy, 
is we've literally regressed on uh, on the continent and we've regressed in terms of civil liberties we've regressed in terms of data privacy we've regressed in terms of just figuring out what the next step is for technology if you look at technology policy as a whole is it equipment phones computers and everything else have become more expensive more taxes are going into communications which is absolutely ridiculous the policy gains that were made under the Kibaki regime have all been erased. And the government is not actually thinking in terms of what is going to happen to this generation of Kenyans that are growing up now. Someone who just graduates out of university or primary school and you know, you're moving into a tech-driven world and you're making tech ridiculously more expensive. And they came in with this whole hope. It's like, hey, we the digital guys and we're going to give laptops to children and we're going to do this and that and everything else. And all that was fluff. Like they had no substance. They did have the right policymakers come in and take the country to the next level. And we're actually losing out from just an economic point of view is Kenya now is probably a net uh, exporter of tech talent that is benefiting other countries, benefiting other economies. And there is no policy to actually figure out how we can retain tech talent to add value to the Kenyan economy. And there are cases where people are working in Kenya, but they're working for remote, they're working for foreign entities in Kenya. So yes, they do contribute a little bit in terms of the salaries that they're getting and they're spending on the economy and everything else, but the net value of their labor is benefiting other economies. And it pains me because it took a lot of work to get the country to this level. And government actually has absolutely no clue in terms of what is happening, how the world has changed, and how to prepare the Kenyan workforce for what is coming up ahead. And I think the Kenya that I want is a government that actually understands the realities of the world, a government that actually understands the fourth industrial revolution, the government that actually understands the role of digital currencies and what is happening all around, not only the continent, but globally, and actually positions itself to be uh, a major player. So yes, we are lucky in the sense that politically and geographically, Kenya is you know, very well located and we have been a beacon of relative peace within the region and that has developed our financial services industry. But you look at now financial services in the 90s and 2000s of financial services of what's going to happen in 2030, I don't think the country is prepared enough and that kind of goes back to, in terms of the policy and the government doesn't really understand what is happening and has been on autopilot as has been on many other sectors. But I think this critical sector where the world is changing, I would like the country to be at a much better position, granted that we have the talent within and we are exporting a lot of talent and have absolutely no policy in terms of figuring out what to do with this talent. Okay. I'd like to start winding the space down now. Um, with final four. And I'll, I'll start with you, Nanjala, and it's the same question to everybody. It's a hypothetical one, so bear with me and, and, and imagine along with me. Nanjala, if you had the power to change anything about this country and, and tomorrow you woke up and you had Avenger-like powers to change whatever you wanted in Kenya and, and transform it into the Kenya that you want, what would that be and why? I would teach, give Kenyans the power, the ability to love themselves. I would want Kenyans to love themselves enough to choose better for themselves. I would want Kenyans to love their children enough 
to not allow weirdos to run weird educational experiments on them that are ruining their lives. I would want Kenyans to love their parents enough to not abandon them to a public healthcare system that will allow them to die in the corridors of a hospital that their taxes are supposed to be funded. I think if there is anything, we would love ourselves enough not to dump our children in boarding schools where they can be traumatized and beaten and harmed in the name of character building. I would love ourselves enough that we would fight for our cities to be green and clean and organized because that doesn't necessarily require massive investments, doesn't have to be an $88 billion infrastructure project. That is basically a decision about having our public environment organized in such a way that it works for us. And I think if there was anything that I would do, because I think that would change our ordering of our priorities, what we're willing to put up with, what we're willing to fight against. I think if there is anything that I would change, me and Ngetaka now to choose themselves and to choose for themselves. That is it, because I think everything would flow from that. And it's weird. It sounds abstract because we're so used to weird structural formulation. And I think the easy things then start to sound hard because it's like we haven't developed the, not we as Kenyans, we as people, as human beings, we spend so much time studying ideology and studying electoral politics and studying structures, and we lose our ability to articulate values and, and, and ideals. And, and they seem so easy that they become difficult. And so loving your children enough to fight for an education system that is good for them and one that isn't harming them seems like such a huge order, such a huge ask. But saying vote for Ruben Higame and not Uru Kenyatta or William Ruto sounds like a much more achievable thing. But for me, that was what, what I would change because I think it would fix so many other things and we would set us to a different uh, pathway. Choose yourselves, love, choose ourselves, love ourselves and choose for ourselves. Okay. I hope the, the Kenyans on this space are listening and that this message travels a lot further than just Twitter. Nanjira. So to access that love um, Nanjala speaks of, I would, in fact, I've always imagined having a Triton international policy would have access to the psychological tools that help us process the trauma. And I mean trauma from a very individual or interpersonal level to the collective level based on our history and what has gotten us here. And why I say that is because I think um, by and large existing in an almost bipolar reality where we say these things, we want, we want everything, we want public health, we want public education that actually works. Many of us are beneficiaries, and I always frame this, many of those who are even vying for this presidency right now are beneficiaries of those systems when they still worked. But it is under their watch that they've become the mess that they are today. That cannot sit well in anybody's psyche. That is not leading to a person who's going to make very healthy decisions because they're along the way they've participated in something, whether they were conscious about it or not. So a lot of this goes back to access to these um, psychological tools as a public good. For me, that would be the ideal because then we would go beyond 
this dual reality beyond hate, beyond the self-deprecation that we somehow as Kenyans have a unique ability to have and start accessing that love and the power of what love could do. And I know it sounds all new age and stuff, but <laughs> it is the language that has been co-opted in the neo systems that we live in, but is the radical, the true radical, the true revolutionary spirit under which, but for us to see that we have to have the tools to clear the fog that and the rain that has not stopped beating us. So I would make sure that those at every level, every community, a means to start processing these traumas and start moving towards love and the revolutions that we deserve. Thank you very much, Nanjira. Sood, you have the last word on this. If you were to wake up tomorrow and change anything, what would you change? I think one thing is accountability. I think we have a political class that absolutely pays no attention to accountability. Nobody wants to be held to account. It, it's all a game of charades. And I think once people become accountable to themselves, to their communities, to their constituents, and if you're in government, to the taxpayer and to, to the mm -hmm. country at large, uh, a lot of things change. And I think our barometer to, uh, for accountability has just gone to an all-time low. And if we can figure out how to improve on that, hopefully things will get better. Okay. Accountability, love of self and love for one another, moving towards love, all incredibly important and, and insightful things that you've just mentioned, all three of you, and this entire evening. It's just been, it's been comment after comment that, that really sinks deeply. And I thank each one of you for being so generous with your time and with your comments. Before I close down the space, there's one or two comments that I want to read from one or two of the people who've been listening. So there's, his handle is at Demau, and he says, what's the point of doing such a good diagnosis of Kenya for almost two hours, then you end up discussing how democracy and politicians will solve the issues they themselves have created? And what's the point of inviting us to listen if we can't contribute to our proposed solutions? Apologies, Demau, we just didn't see your hand going up, but you did propose a solution earlier, which is the main problem is that we do not have a coherent national and spatial economic plan or coherent county integrated development plans derived from the national one, both required by the Constitution of Kenya 2010 were planless at all levels. Gadingi Gladys says, the Kenya I want is one where taxes work for us. I think that's something that's, that's agreed. Uh, not to take away from the very heavy comments that have been made this evening. And once again, I'd just like to thank you all. Let's see, there's, there's one or two more. Dr. Brown Mokaya says, the thing that makes me feel agitated is when the president of Kenya stands at the podium and says that our economy is better than it was before. I look at the GDP he comes in with, and the GDP has shrunk, essentially. And, and thank you very much for the comments that you've made this evening. Once again, we really, really appreciate your time. Nanjala, all of your comments are well received. We thank you very much, as we do Nanjira, Nanjira Sambuli for incredibly insightful things that you've said this evening. The same to you, Sood, and to all of you who've been listening and following and commenting on our various handles. We, we hope to have more time to, for people to raise their hands and comment in the next um, edition of Mwango Uncensored. For now, I'd just like to say thank you very much. Have a great evening. Continue to interact with us on our socials, at Mwango Capital, at Africa Uncensored. And a small plug for Africa Uncensored, the foul series on the story of money continues. You can catch it on YouTube and, and share your comments with us there as well. 
as well as follow some of our work. The same for Mongo Capital, a lot of research going into the financial situation across the country, the various conversations that we're having. For now, thank you very much and have a great evening. Godspeed. Kwa